0: Welcome to A Force for Change. I'm Diane Dosis, And I'm Kata Isari. And we'll be your hosts for this podcast, which is brought to
1: you by Praxis. We created this podcast to explore the through lines in our work to end gender based violence, where we've been, where we are now, and where we've yet to go. The advocates, organizers and activists we interview on the show, hold pieces of our origin stories. We'll learn
0: about the power of connection from the conversations that led to the creation of one of the first shelters for Asian Americans, to the ways we've created space for survivors to connect with one another and lead our movement for social justice.
1: In this episode, Kata speaks with longtime advocate and organizer, Becky Misaki. Becky shares about her early days working to end gender-based violence and the ways she has challenged racism, homophobia, and other isms in the movement. She also describes co-founding Asian Women's Shelter, one of the first programs in the nation for Asian survivors of domestic violence and trafficking.
0: Becky currently works as a consultant and was previously the social justice and community building director at the Asian Pacific Institute on Gender-Based Violence, which is a national resource center on gender violence in Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Prior to that, Becky served as the founding executive director of Asian Women's Shelter for 21 years. Well, I'm here today with Becky Masaki who is speaking to us from Oakland, California, and I'm speaking to you from Seattle, Washington, which is the traditional homeland of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stillaguamish, and Muckleshoot peoples. Becky, I wonder if you could uh, introduce
2: yourself? Yes, thank you for having me here. I'm Becky, Becky Utamasaki. She hers and I am here in Watch on Ohlone Lands, aka Oakland, California. Great. So good to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about how you first
0: got involved in the work to end gender-based violence.
2: Yeah. You know, just revealing to all, I just celebrated my 65th birthday. Oh, and happy birthday. In, thank you. <laughs> and in reflecting, I realized 40 years ago is when I started Doing the domestic violence work and getting into this uh, movement to end violence against women, and uh, obviously that's been my whole career trajectory, and really has in my dedication to changing lives and creating places without violence, that changed my life too. Mm. Things must have been
0: really different 40 years ago. What did you start (laughs) off doing when you entered the movement?
2: Yeah, you know, um, before I had graduated from an undergraduate and then my graduate getting an MSW, a master's in social work, and I felt like I really wanted to live my core values of race and gender equity. I don't think we even had that name for it at that time, but anti-racism work and women's rights work, that was, you know, imagine in the 70s and then into the 80s, it was really a time where that was emerging and being able to be voiced. And that is where I felt like who I was, and what I wanted to do. So when I saw that there was a job at a local in San Francisco domestic violence shelter, one of the first in the nation, I was so excited and thought this is the place where I could really work my values. And so I applied for a job. So you could imagine in those days, most of the shelters, they were like, of course, the direct service. And of course, that is the essential core of what a domestic violence shelter would do. So the other um, staff was like women's advocate, you know, children's advocate. But in my position, it was new as a volunteer coordinator. So I created the volunteer program and also did community outreach. And also, I was the first and only Asian woman to be hired. What was that experience like for you? So even though when you look back at it, the roots of the domestic violence movement started with women gathering, that had experienced domestic violence and created a support group, right? And they were very diverse and people of different kinds of backgrounds. But I think that with the domestic violence shelters, while we were trying to become more formalized, not a grassroots community thing, but just like to be recognized, to be addressed, you know, to be taken seriously. The unfortunate part of that or the unintended consequence was that race was erased out of that. And so most all of the folks that participated and were known for participated was in the white dominant culture. I joined actually with two African American friends of mine who also applied for positions there. And so we were the three women of color. And during that time, we faced a lot of racism in our internal work. And we started doing anti-racism work and saying, our, you know, our staff, our policies, we need to change. We need to add racism into the women's rights. And we got together. We even started this grassroots group, California Women of Color Against Domestic Violence. And California is a big, long state. But we would drive, I remember, this is again before social media and those kinds of things, I don't think we even had a computer, but we would like telephone each other. or I remember driving my car, you know, seven hours to from San Francisco to Los Angeles area, and we would come together as women of color doing this work in domestic violence. I also remember that our employers at that time, wouldn't let us use work time to get together. So then our regular schedule was like every Saturday, or one Saturday or two Saturdays each month, we would come together on a day off. I feel like that helped me continue in the work. And in fact, at that point, a lot of my friends, women of color left their jobs and went into other fields even though so dedicated to domestic violence and violence against women. I stuck with it, but finally felt like, oh yeah, it's not, this isn't the field. This isn't the movement that where I belong. And um, so I quit that job and I did work, you know, do some little work here and there, even thinking I'd go into the education department and work there. But at that time, We still were. We still met as California women of color because it was on these Saturdays. And I met together with other Asian women like Debbie Lee and Deanna Jang. And it felt so good to have other women, Asian women that were thinking the same way as myself. And so we got together and we created what we then called Asian Women's Shelter because we felt that there needed to be a place for women who were experiencing violence from our community. And we knew those people. Sometimes we were those people, our our sisters, our our aunties, our our moms, our uh, folks in our community, at our church, our temple, you know, as what we all know, it crosses all lines. Um, But at that point, our services, and our addressing it did not cross all lines.
0: Yeah, that is um, an amazing description of how your consciousness developed over that time and the connections that you built. How was it received when you began Asian Women's Shelter? I know now people talk so highly of it, but what was it like at first?
2: Yeah, you know, that was interesting because what happened to us is In the Asian community at that time, we were also one of the first Asian women-led social justice organizations. So people were very conscious about the race equality work. And so even those that we worked with, many of us worked in those organizations like legal rights or immigration rights or those kind farm worker rights, but with the leadership or male dominance, sometimes they would call us race traitors. And that was the, the hardest and most hurtful thing to be called a traitor against your race, because you're raising these issues that are harming women within the race, sometimes by people outside of the race, but also by people within our race ourselves. That
0: resonates a lot with me, Becky, as an immigrant to the United States, that there's a sense that we have to keep our bad stuff internal to the community. Um, So it sounds like there was pushback from other folks within the Asian community, and just in the Bay Area where you, where the Asian Women's Shelter existed or elsewhere?
2: Elsewhere. Pretty much everywhere where we were reaching out to or building the mm-hmm. connections. Also, so we had that pushback around race, and we also had that pushback in, in women's rights and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So interesting... In San Francisco, there were two other shelters that were at that time existed. And one shelter, it was the one that I had to leave that was really fomenting a lot of racism. They said, oh, you cannot compete. You know, we already have this shelter. It's lessening us. So they were very much against us starting Asian Women's Shelter. But isn't it interesting then the other shelter... They embraced us. Mm -hmm. They said, yes, we need that because we don't have the language and cultural needs. Of course, we want to serve all women who are surviving domestic violence, but we don't have that and we need that, so welcome. And they would do things like share, here's a copy of our house rules. Here's what our core values, our mission state, you know, just freely sharing kinds of things and also introducing us in the city, that kind of thing. So here we are. Isn't that interesting, like seeing those two kinds of ways that others in the domestic violence movement treated us in that way.
0: Yeah, that's a really powerful example. I was thinking about a concept I know you're familiar with. We talk about it, Praxis, in terms of horizontal hostility, that often those of us on the margins are so busy fighting each other that we don't recognize the source of oppression coming from the center. And it sounds like, but then you had horizontal hostility, but also really strong allies, functioning at the same time. And I'm also thinking, Becky, that was a really powerful statement to call it Asian Women's Shelter. Now, I think in 2022, 23, we're familiar with putting the name of a race or a racial group, but that wasn't so common um, back then.
2: Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. That is true. Because now, later, so many years, decades later, I'm so proud of Asian Women's Shelter. And I think it's kind of a plain name. (laughs) But you're so right, is that that gives you some background or context about why we called it that because we were claiming that yes we are Asian yes we're women and we just proudly claimed that and made it a 501c3 made it an, an official nonprofit you know went that way I also want to say so I talked about the challenges but I also want to say what made us made it work is yes us staying together and staying at our core as the core founders but also those who supported us. So there were Asian men in our Asian community that really uphold and went all for that. And many of them were leaders, like a high-level reverend and a fierce, you know, social justice advocate and leader. That those kinds of ways. So that was really important that we had people uh, across all genders that were supporting us in the Asian communities. And also, like I gave the example of in the overall women's community Mm -hmm. that we had, those that did support us as well. So I guess my, my sharing about that was it was really keeping that balance, like staying core and true to our whole selves. Really, it's easy to get caught up in Working against those that are oppressing you or pushing you down or competing with you, but also don't forget those that you're working for. And I would imagine for the advocates and the, the staff
0: doing the work too, that that was it could have been isolating, but you found ways to work against that and for that. What are some of the ways in which you engage the community and built those strong connections?
2: Yeah, well, I could share the one that I want to really credit and uphold, Christy Chung, who was our third staff person um, at Asian Women's Shelter. It was myself as the founding executive director, May Singh Seiturn, who was our women's advocate. And then Christy Chung, she was our third staff person as a volunteer and multilingual access coordinator. And you know, what she did was bringing in her whole self with her race and justice commitment, race and gender justice commitment, and work and experience and her LGBT rights. And what happened was, as she learned, and all of us learn more about domestic violence, she realized, you know, that happens Uh, across gender as well. And there was even no name for that at that time. And so we called it same gender relationship violence to acknowledge and to see that people, no matter the gender of your partner, that abuse could happen and no one deserves that abuse. So what I'm saying about engaging community, you could imagine it's hard to come out you know, because of the homophobia and racism, transphobia, all of the ways that hurt and divide us. You could imagine it's hard to come out and say, you're coming out for your identity. You're coming out that you're being abused by your intimate partner, you know, and also in a very tight-knit, close Circle, or maybe even you're here in our area in San Francisco because your own biological family is not really addressing or acknowledging your or even pushing out your gender identity. And so you move to San Francisco, you know, and thinking of that as your safe haven and community that's accepting your LGBT identity, right? So you can imagine if something like domestic violence comes in, even more so, so isolated. So we started doing these community education, our community outreach forums at the Women's Building in in San Francisco on LGBT rights and domestic violence. Well, can you imagine what, I mean, we didn't think about it at that time, but can you imagine, okay, if I'm experiencing violence and I'm in an LGBT relationship, am I going to go to that support group they're inviting me to? It outs me on so many different levels. So we realized, oh, that's why nobody's coming. And so What we did is we created dinner meetings and we would have one person. So say, I remember, I'll give an example, one of our board members, Indonesian LGBT woman who had all her little tight circle of community friends in the LGBT community, many of them Indonesian or also from other South Asia, Southeast Asian communities in the LGBT community so she had said come over for dinner we're going to have this speaker but mainly we're going to have food and it, a lot came her friends and that community came and they had a nice dinner meeting a couple of us who attended that were able to meet and greet and then do a little, presentation about it. And, you know, that was so deep because it was a safe space. Sure enough, after that uh, conversation in among others in a safe space, people would come up to me and the other advocate later or call us or, you know, thank you for saying what you did, what you're describing that's happening to me. Or I have a sister, or that's, you know, those kinds of things. So it really became a safe way to gather folks. So I'd highly re- recommend that, dinner meetings. <laughs> yeah,
0: anything around food is good. Yes.
2: But I wanted to try to bring this into the present
0: day a little bit, but I had one more thing I wanted to ask you about, which is I know that you had many different Asian communities represented amongst your staff and many people with different identities. And I wonder how you manage those internal differences and some of the ways that you uh, found to support some staff that maybe were not part of even with the mainstream Asian communities?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, I feel like it is to really listen, to understand and not make assumptions about people's different backgrounds and experiences. And it was such a great opportunity for me to learn Because here in the US, if you're not part of the dominant culture, like I thought, okay, I'm Asian. Yes, and I'm proud of that. But when you think about it, Asia is really half of the world, you know, geographically and like what, like, you know, hundreds, thousands of different languages and ways. So that is what we decided we need to center on is just knowing we're all from these different Different ways and not clump us together. And I feel like also culturally, it was so, I learned a lot. Like, for example, in our first shelter, we rented this place. It was like a three bedroom um, house in San Francisco. And we used two of the bedrooms for the residence and the third bedroom for our office. And we were so excited to receive our first residence, a Cambodian woman and her three children, they coming in to the shelter. And as I had shared, we had about three bedrooms and the biggest one, we decided we're going to have her and her family stay there. And so I said, let's, okay, let's get ready for that. Let's fix up that room. Let's go and make the beds. And I started making the bed and she goes, oh, you know, I'm embarrassed. I don't know what you mean by making the bed. And I go, oh, it's easy. And I'm showing her like, I guess what we used to call the nurse's corner, like how you tuck in and make these folds in the in the sheets and then the blanket. This Cambodian woman and her three kids come in and they're puzzled and we go this room is for you you know this you just be comfortable you're safe and then what i noticed later is they pulled like the blankets and sheets and slept on the floor And they use the bed kind of, I thought it, they think, I think they thought it was kind of like a table or a place that they could put things. And that was just such a wake up call for me, myself thinking, oh my goodness, here I am like, you know, these cultural ways, the ways that when we want to make people feel like this is your home, you know, that we pay attention or we listen to what makes people feel most at home. Yeah.
0: And with the best intentions in the world, that was so wonderful that you did want to make the best. And yet that wasn't their cultural practice. It sounds like as a staff, you were all learning how to show up for different groups of survivors in meaningful ways. What are some other ways you all work to meet the needs of survivors?
2: Oh, yes. I told the story about how we've recognized and realized that we needed to address same gender relationship violence and I told the story about having those dinner meetings etc and so when they got together the lgbt folks felt like they really needed a safe space without straight identified folks being part of it so they needed like to have their own support group or their meeting time you know where they feel like they could just really be their whole selves talk about their relationships talk about what would work for the community and so we had that at that time i think we called well now it's called queer asian women and transgender support quats they name themselves and and then we so myself as a straight identified person and staff on that team felt like, you know, we need to really be educating ourselves and address um, homophobia and the ways that even us as well-intended people are making these Assumptions or mistakes or not recognizing the privileges, doing heterosexism. So we decided, and at that time, so you can imagine this is the 1980s, 1990s, and one of the most popular movies was Ghostbusters. <laughs> we thought, okay, let's call ourselves homophobia busters because we're our job as the ones that aren't experiencing directly the harm, we are the ones that are going to break up that harm of homophobia, transphobia. Mm -hmm. So that's why we called ourselves that, um, homophobia busters. And that was good because it was a time where we could meet among ourselves, educate ourselves so we would Trade that around and do different education for ourselves, have guest speakers, have trainers, that kind of thing, but also hold ourselves accountable. So it was a place where when we saw an action happening or something happening or something was brought to our attention, that was where we we called ourselves mm. on homophobia and found ways to repair the harm. So really important work as allies to both
0: learn and grow and change and hold each other accountable is really powerful. I I can remember when I lived in Michigan and then Seattle and, and then later Hawaii, that the kind of legend of Asian women's shelter and the important influence that it had on the work to end gender based violence, including things like homophobia busters to speak to doing internal work organizationally, as well as in the community and with survivors. I, I wonder, I know that you don't uh, work at Asian Women's Shelter anymore, and you've gone on to do other amazing work. And. As you think about your own pathway in this movement and where the movement is today, what are some of you know the lessons that you feel you took from your history into the present day that you might want to share with our listeners?
2: Yeah, I think that one of those threads that I was telling stories about so far, but still resonate with me, are this idea of creating community. And the uh, for me, I'm really right now focusing on interconnectedness. I want to quote Grace Lee Boggs. There's many quotes to give to Grace Lee Boggs and her memory. Because I think we were like asking her, like, how do we get more people involved in this? Like build the movement, the critical mass, critical mass. And she goes, you know, yes, critical mass. But it's not so much critical mass as critical connection. I feel like that is something that I carry forward and I think we need to not forget or not erase. I think about, so in the past stories I was sharing about the LGBT community and how we had those dinner communities and then how, and you shared Kata about how that continued and grew both in a a statewide international level, these different ways where people were able to come together. I feel like that's an essential element. That's a really powerful description of the importance of community.
0: And when I listen to that, Becky, and I think about where we are in this work now, I think about the ways in which we've professionalized this work. And I wonder how community fits into that professional approach that we've taken and, Wonder what your thoughts are about the overprofessionalization of the work and where we are now in relationship to those days when you were working on Saturdays and people weren't getting paid for this and how things have evolved in that 40 years.
2: Yeah, I know. I think sometimes our professionalism, which we wanted so much to be recognized, and I feel like let's not conflate professionalism with a intention of intentional community organizing, community building, that a lot of times we might think that is not really professional, but yes, it is professional. It's the intentional way that we are going to build community, create communities that operate or have these core values or anti-values, you know, uh, ways that we learn how to do in an everyday practice. That's professionalism. So I feel like we've had the luxury in this country to separate or divide things like, oh, I'm in this department or I'm in this kind of cubicle of work. And yes, that's good that you could go deep in that, but that Going across doesn't mean that you're not professional. It's like that, I guess, what we're calling multi-sector work, that that is something that organically a lot of us, because of no resources, have done for a lot of times because that is how it was how we were living.
0: Sometimes I worry that we do less and less of the voices and experience of survivors leading us at this point in our work and I wonder what what you think or what your experience has been today in terms of how survivor led our work is.
2: Yeah, we say the words, but often we don't do the practice. And so I feel like that would be an invitation for all of us to get creative and find ways to truly live survivor led work, to center survivors. Now we have the luxury of providing services and outreach and education and those kinds of things to survivors, for survivors to speak out, but also how do we really all be our whole person, right? Just embrace and address our whole selves. So we're more than a single story. We might be survivors, but we're also... Reverends or leaders or teachers or mothers or aunties or you know, community members, um, those kinds of things to just acknowledge all of the all of who we are and then integrating that. I feel like that lens allows us to to name our whole selves and just truly like live and be our whole selves
0: that connection and the community building that you talked before across all aspects of our work it sounds like what you're talking about yeah
2: and i feel like you know then the other is true that then we kind of just blend it all all together I'll give the example in current times at Asian Women's Shelter, we created the direct service work and then what we called community building work. And that's where we invited in with the inspiration because of the inspiration of our LGBT groups that and saw the meaning and the importance of that we created that opening for other groups to organize as they'd like. So we had the Shimta, the Korean community. They said, that's great what you're doing at Asian Women's Shelter, but we need something. There's so much of our Korean community in faith-based communities. We want a Korean faith-based group and also Korean community group That's not just about women, but just the whole kind of community, like a community center. And so we said, yes. And we started that as a collaborative, but then uh, intentionally they spun off into become Shimta. And um, then became um, Nakasak in different ways in a national way that they just continue to evolve and create these community circles. Um, So that's an example of, I feel like it's great to be able to create these community circles. And some of them, they choose and want to stay within, say, Asian women's shelter within a shelter program, but also have support groups outside. Or sometimes they want to just, you know, be their own entity, spin off in that way.
0: Well, and it makes me think that as, as Asian Women's Shelter became established as an organization and built its legitimacy incredibly across many different parts of the community, that you used your privilege to support others who didn't have that same kind of visibility and credibility. And um, that's such a, another important way of being an ally, even within our own communities, that is so essential.
2: Yes, right. Right. And so in 2000, at the Millennium, there was a conference, a a national conference in Chicago called the Millennium Conference. I was invited to do a keynote speech. And I did a speech called Gathering Strength. And I talked about how we needed to gather strength, that we were at the height of our success as a domestic violence movement, but that we needed to gather strength. And I gave these different points of the ways that, that we should do, do that, building the power of the margins and so now, what is it like um 20 years later, I feel like um, around 10 years later, I felt like, you know, I resurrected my speech and I said, you know, I made this speech like a call to action. What am I doing to actually do those things I told folks that we should be doing? And so I started the Gathering Strength Cohort. A group, a circle of uh, this, in this case, immigrant and refugee folks, I did that with a foundation grant and started gathering, the Gathering Strength group, which we now call ourselves Gathering Strength Collective. And it really was this place where people could belong. I want to give one example of um, Mary, who was a Hmong advocate who worked in our Central California Valley. And during that Gathering Strength Her first thing was, Becky, I think you made a mistake because you selected me as part of the cohort, but I'm not an executive director or I'm not even a deputy director. I'm just a direct service advocate. And I said, no, I did not make a mistake. And so as among advocates, she was in our cohort, and in that cohort could meet others, one of her dreams was, I wish that other Hmong advocates could be brought together, because that was also a dynamic that our domestic violence shelters had, even the well-intentioned to have one Latina advocate, who you know, one Asian advocate, or one, in this case, Hmong advocate, so that when they were able to come together across different shelters, they actually could exchange information, which is good for the organization that they work at, getting ideas, and also good for community change. And so in this example, first of all, Mary changed back to her original name, Pana, her Hmong name. She claimed and named that. And in our group, she invited in other Hmong members into our cohort. And in fact, they created their own group they called Chan. And I kept saying, Chan, what does that mean? And it's the acronym for California Hmong Advocate Network. C-H-A-N. And now they are thriving. They are still going on. They are across our California state, the Hmong Advocates growing. They have their own 501c3 now or their, or their physical sponsorship to, to just keep growing and building. It's so amazing to think that a speech you made over 20 years ago still
0: has such an impact today. Thinking about that and what's ahead of us in this work, what are some ways you feel we can continue to create change in the
2: movement? We move the movement when we push past treading water and start to swim for shore, transcend the fear, the da- and really dare to dream again, like really honor our ancestors, like here you are in Praxis, like honor and remember Ellen Pence and others that really started our, our movement And then moving that to really appreciate that we've come a long way, but also know we're still part way that, you know, being proud of the work that we've done, but we learn from it, continue to learn, build on it, critique it and diverge from it to just keep it alive and keep it real. We move the movement when we're willing to go through the same kind of major transformations and revolutionary upheaval that we expect from survivors of domestic violence, right? So in our work, we're like, yeah, just uproot, get out of that abusive relationship, break the cycle. Oh, yeah, you could come to this shelter, which is at a secret location that you don't know anybody. Or, you know, you could move to a different state or a different place. Like, you know, and really, that's meaningful to welcome them and important. And that is such a big leap, right? It's such a big, major change. And so, for ourselves, I mean, just tapping in, being gentle with ourselves to recognize our own journey, our own ability to undo the harm that we've experienced, to heal, and then also to continue, right? To, make, to move, to continue to challenge ourselves in those ways. Really... Important what you said in terms of the upheaval
0: that survivors go through uh, when they come to us and our expectation about that. What is some of the upheaval that you would suggest that we would consider as individual advocates and as organizations or as a movement that might mirror, you know, you said that we'd be willing to do that same kind of upheaval. What is some of that? upheaval that you might
2: challenge us to consider doing? I feel like one upheaval will be to think of our being siloed as something that we need to break and that it's important to, to stay to our core values and stay true to that, but also to open up And to think about what it would be to to learn and share across organizations, across movements. And what I mean by that is sometimes we felt like, oh, we're at cross-purposes, like workers' rights and domestic violence and women's rights, they're at cross-movement, you know, and Finding the way where they are intersecting and we're part of the same movement is a way that is more powerful for both movements, mm-hmm. really, And yeah. that we learn from each other.
0: That really, we have so much more in common with each other than we do that are that is different. I'm wondering what would you want your message to be um, to advocates right now as you as we think about the future, of this movement and of this work there's many messages that you've given us but what might you want them to carry
2: away or carry forward from this conversation first i think simply just remember that you are believed you you we believe you your whole selves and that you're not alone so i feel like that is what we often share with survivors that were helping. And I would say, take that in for yourself. If you are a survivor and those who are helping survivors, take that in as well. That I also, I think maybe as a loving challenge, I would say that we believe in you and that you go to the edges, listen to the most marginalized and most impacted, and not just to support and build those folks, but to notice and intentionally practice how they can build and grow you as well. Mm.
0: This is such a pivotal time for all of us, given not just the 40 or 50 years of this work, but what's happened in the last few years. And what is it that gives you hope? for the future, Becky? You're always so hopeful and
2: optimistic. What gives you hope? Yeah, I feel like what gives me hope is intergenerational leadership and community and that interconnectedness. So um, Kata, I know that you had shared with me, and I'm that gives me hope. You said like us, uh, well, me as an older, an elder in the movement, I still have a, a few years that I wanna make my best contribution. And so I think what gives me hope is that I could pass that on, that people are interested in listening and learning and also in that way that that helps me. To be my best self, continue, even as an older elder, to continue to learn and grow is to listen to our children and our children's children, right? So really the power of that intergenerational way that we're doing the work is is key hope for me.
0: Diane, Becky shared powerful insights about the importance of centering those at the margins. It was really moving to hear about the way she did that by being deeply rooted in community.
1: Yes, her stories really got me thinking. And one thing I'm wondering about is how advocacy programs today are doing some of those things that Becky identified as being so important. I mean, how is it that we're connecting with community? How is it that we're connecting with those with marginalized identities? Absolutely, it's
0: something all of us need to think more about as we move forward. Before we go, we wanna thank Becky Masaki for joining us to share her stories and her insights and to continue these conversations with us. This podcast has been hosted by Diane Dosis and Kata Isari with additional production support from Beth Gibbs with Lyft Podcasting. Patrice Anthony and Amanda Watson, along with other Praxis staff, were instrumental in creating this podcast. We'd also like to thank the U.S. Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women
1: for supporting this project. And thank you for listening. Be sure to follow A Force for Change on your favorite podcast app. So, you don't miss any future episodes. If you'd like to continue the conversation or find out more about our programs, you can reach us at infopraxisinternational.org or visit our website at praxisinternational.org.